Welcome to the Exit Coach Radio Show, the show for baby boomer business owners who are looking for cutting-edge information as they plan their 3- to 10-year business succession and exit. Every week, we interview top professional advisors for their best tips, strategies, and precautions so you can be well-planned. And don't miss our one-minute Exit Coach Tip of the Day on ExitCoachRadio.com. And now, here's your host, the Exit Coach, Bill Black. Welcome to the show, everybody. Thanks so much for being with us. We have a, a great guest that's been with us before uh, coming up in just a second. Before we get to that, I want to let you know that uh, our new book, the Exit Coach Radio book called 100 Words from 100 Advisors is now available at ExitCoachRadio.com. You can go to our website and get it there. Or uh, for a limited time, you can text Exit Coach, all one word, no spaces, Exit Coach to 44222. Again, text Exit Coach with no spaces to 44222 and get the book for half off its uh, listed price on Amazon. Uh, my next guest is uh, Eric Klinger, and he's joining us from Deal Lounge in Manhattan Beach, California. And let me tell you a little bit about Deal Lounge. They bring uncovered investment banking deals in the lower middle market to a broader audience of financial and strategic buyers. So if you're in that if you're in that space where you're saying, you know, I I, I need somebody to help bring me to market. Uh, and to uh, an audience of financial and strategic buyers, you're going to want to listen up to this. Eric, thanks for joining us today, and welcome back. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for having me today. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. Um, I, uh, I I wanted I like the name of the company, Deal Lounge. It, it conjures oh, up an you. image, <laughs> first of all. Yeah. Uh, and congratulate you on your successes that you're having. Tell our listeners um, how Deal Lounge came to be. Yeah, Deal Lounge, you know, it's kind of an interesting story. I was visualizing sort of an airport lounge. And, you know, as with many business professionals, I spent a lot of time in airports. And uh, I'm kind of a, I'm fascinated by the design of airports. And, um, you know, I, I really came up with a visualization of an airport lounge where, you know, harried travelers can just stop in and sort of, um, you know, take a load off and, have a good time and maybe do a deal or maybe not, but just, you know, participate in a relaxing and fun process that doesn't have to be a big ordeal. And that's really where I came up with the name. And, you know, we did some branding around that and uh, it's, it's worked out pretty well. Yeah, I can picture it. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's kind of a, an atmosphere where people are just, you know, they're, they're communicating with each other on, on what, what's going on and what they have. And it's kind of laid back and casual. Um, yeah. But uh, the, the whole idea here is that a large number of uh, small, mid and smaller companies that are owned by baby boomers are going to be hitting the market. And uh, as people age into that uh, process, and a, a lot of them are wondering, well, where do I go? How do I get to the marketplace? What you guys are bringing together is is financial buyers, which are people who are looking to to buy the business and maybe even run or operate it, or strategic yeah. buyers who would be a bigger player in their industry who say we want to bolt on that gem to our to our business because they're going to make us uh, that much more profitable. So how do you do all this? Well. First of all, you know, our audience really is uh, the 
there's a lot of private equity firms. We tend to like uh, firms that have a portfolio company in that industry already. So they are uh, basically strategic acquirers as opposed to financial buyers uh, in and of themselves. And they're looking for businesses not only to tack on to what they have in their portfolio already, but they're also looking for, you know, slightly bigger deals that they can use as standalone uh, acquisitions. In our role in that process, we don't disintermediate advisor. We generally take the deal from them and uh, we take, you know, undercovered deals from boutique advisors where their deal might not be widely distributed and we take that narrowcast to deal and broadcast it. So from the standpoint of a company, you know, that is entering into succession planning and really looking for a possible exit, you know, for the business that they've worked so hard to build, what we tend to do is we provide them an entry into the market as far as, you know, helping them put together their deal team, uh, you know, really kind of staging the company for exit the same way that you would the same way that you would stage a house if you're looking to sell it. Right. And that's, you know, we'll refer them to an advisor and, and a deal team of, you know, lawyers and accountants and so forth to really get it ready first and, and really get it sort of palatable to our buyers. And then we put it into the process. And our role is, you know, less advisory and more connecting and making that pure connection. All right. So, Eric, uh, uh, I heard how you bring together um, buyers and sellers uh, and how, how do you go about finding and, and reaching deal advisors or companies? Or is that what you're looking for? Uh, well, we are looking. We actually have a pretty solid uh, stable of probably about 800 plus advisors in the lower middle market. They're, you know, kind of boutique. I would characterize them as, you know, sort of the two to ten man shops. And the reason that they the reason that they want to work with us is that they generally don't have the junior staff of a big bank. So mm-hmm. when it comes to distributing a deal, you know, they're of course going to call all the strategics in the space, and the strategics pretty much already know who's for sale anyway. But when it comes to distributing to private equity firms, they just don't have the junior staff to do it, even though they may have a very deep Rolodex. So we are able to do it for them more efficiently because we distribute it electronically. So it's a productivity benefit for them. That makes a lot of sense. And so would it be fair to say that as you, as you work, you know, in the, in the mid market and higher, there's a process in place, there's a hierarchy, there's a lot of resources and there's a lot of people running around doing deals. But as you work your way down market, um, there's going to be, uh, smaller firms that get involved, smaller companies for sale, and and it's just they need to have a kind of a central resource, and that's where Deal Lounge comes in. Yes, I think that that that's that's fair to say. So if you look at deals in terms of ten million dollars of EBITDA and below, you're starting to get more into the boutique players that maybe you know perfectly good bankers, but they tend to be more resource lean. So yeah. those are our favorite banks to work with, uh, you know, our competitors like Axial work with bigger banks who have that full complement of analyst support who are able to distribute their deals on their own. So we saw no value in redistributing what's already been a broadly distributed deal. 
we wanted to take a deal that was undercovered and narrowcasted and bring it to a broader audience. That way we could bring value to both the advisor and, and more importantly to the private equity firms and the audience members that are actually paying our fees. They don't want to see the same deal that's already been, you know, sort of thrown across their desk four times. Right. They want yeah, to see the deal yep. that they haven't seen before. And that's Absolutely. that's the niche that we that we fill. Now in your in your on the sell side, what types of companies do you find yourself working with? Are there certain industries or niches or sizes or is it all over the map? No, we're fairly industry agnostic. Uh, we stay away from maybe pure financial services plays just because, you know, the level of regulation, you know, particularly the Dodd-Frank is kind of arduous. Um, yeah. But yeah. beyond that, you know, in some oil and gas, there's some re- reserve accounting issues that we can't quite get our arms around. But other than that, very industry agnostic. We love deals. Having over $3 million of EBITDA, that's really our, our preference because, you know, we have two pools of deals. We have, you know, our free deals, which are frankly smaller, under yep. $2 million of EBITDA. And our buyers look at that as an add-on. Uh, we prefer the deals that, you know, we can actually monetize through our subscriber offering that are $3 million of EBITDA and above, or if it's a capital raise over $5 million, because those deals can function both as an add-on and a standalone. So they're slightly more versatile from a buyer's standpoint. Sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So so uh, $3 million of EBITDA, depending on the industry, you could be looking at a, uh, what, uh, $40 million revenue company? Yeah. I'm ballparking yeah, here. I mean, yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's good numbers there because, you know, we're looking at a deal right now that's exactly $40 million of EBITDA, just over three. Um, you know, those tend to be, you know, as you get up there, those tend to be sort of businesses that are in very competitive industries. Um, and as such, you know, three on 40 is, you know, fairly standard. Hey, if you're doing better than that from a margin perspective, we'd love to talk to you. That was a lucky guess, but let's say let's yeah. say you know there are there are uh, professional firms that three million of EBITDA might be a six or seven million dollar revenue company, right? I mean, just depending, it depends oh, yeah. on on the type of industry and how it's structured. But what are some of the characteristics that would cause you to look at a deal? Not let's say they meet your financial criteria, but from an operational yeah. standpoint or from a management standpoint, what are some of the things that will cause you to look at a deal and go? No way, that's never going to work. What are some of the big red flags? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, the things that we tend to look for, I mean, we t- I guess we tend to be glass half full people by nature, but as probably are most bankers, um, we tend to look for, okay, are their gross margins in line with their industry or slightly better? Uh, if they have worse margins, we need to know why. Uh, if their year-on-year revenue growth is negative, we need to do, we need to drill into that. Um, if their management team, actually, this isn't such a this isn't such a red flag for us. I mean, there are a lot of owner operators in companies. We prefer to see a management team, particularly on the deals over three million dollars of EBITDA. Yeah. Um, but we can we can work with that because hey, what we're saying is a private equity firm, you don't have to do all the heavy lifting yourself as a business owner. 
you could very easily get into the process and, you know, let the private equity firm pull their weight as far as during due diligence, hey, maybe they can line up some executives to round out your business team. Maybe they can line up some customers that with a couple of phone calls, they could, you know, diversify your customer concentration. That brings me to the last one, which is, and this is really industry dependent, but sometimes customer concentration can be an issue. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, some industries like aerospace, for example, customer concentration is fairly far for the course because it's a platform. But if you're running, you know, a branded consumer business and you have five customers and, you know, Walmart is a great customer, let's say, but they're 70% of your revenue. Well, if that relationship goes south for any reason and, you know, guess what? They're Walmart and you're you, uh, you know, you could have a problem there. I mean, you know, 70% of your revenue line could disappear for whatever reason. So we, we would need to get comfortable on that. It makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously the great tips. And we, we, obviously we hear those kind of things all the time as far as what are some of the preference items. Those are right in line with what we hear a lot. Now, do you find any big difference between a, a financial buyer's qualifications and a strategic buyer's qualifications? Are strategic buyers looking more for the niche player uh, in a, in that, in their industry or uh, what, what can you tell us about that? Well, they tend to look at deals very differently. Um, You know, we always prefer a strategic buyer because the client, most clients in this, you know, with with everything that we know now, most clients definitely uh, prefer a strategic takeout. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the problem is with a strategic, it's hard to get a deal done sometimes because when they want to move, they can move very fast. But if your business doesn't exactly fit into their to their sweet spot, they tend to not be as excited. Um, and that's that's where private equity has an advantage because they're industry agnostic and they're open to more things. Um, you know, private equity tends to acquire things more for cash. Strategics, you know, might want to use stock. But on the other hand, private equity firms, in some cases, try to make use of seller debt. Um, that's you know, I think it's enough to say that most business owners would be uh, would prefer to be taken out by a strategic because their valuation parameters are also different, right? They look at it as contribution to gross margin as opposed right. to, you know, LTM EBITDA or in the case of a software business, you know, they, te- they would tend to acquire uh, as a multiple of revenue. Yeah, and they're gonna they're gonna realize cost saving right away by doing away with a lot of the uh, job descriptions or departments. Even they're just they're looking to get that gem that that's going to be perfect for their business. So so uh, what I'm getting at is if a company, for instance, is looking to be acquired by a strategic buyer, and let's say they're yep. saying, okay, in the next three years we want to be a strategic target. Right now we have five different lines that we work in and we're all over the map. Um, Should they start thinking about narrowing those down and, and really focusing in on uh, a a very narrow niche to be a strategic target? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I would say that it depends. And it really depends on their customer concentration. 
if they are going narrow, you know, they might find themselves more concentrated than they are today. So that's, you know, that's always a little bit of a turnoff, that higher level of concentration. On the other hand, if they can fit more cleanly into a strategic portfolio by narrowing their focus down to a niche, then that might be worth it. But, you know, then you're, then you're sort of gambling, uh, you know, the enterprise on that firm, you know, that company being ready and willing to acquire that company at that time. And as you know, if you're looking at a three-year horizon, a lot can change in three years. Yep. You know, in Good some point. cases, it's it's good to have that strategic sort of, you know, sort of pre-sold and, you know, it's good to have a banker that would maybe know that industry really well. But I think you always want a backup of at least, you know, if not a pure financial buyer, because a lot of people are, you know, kind of turned off by that, at least know what private equity firms are in that space or have had portfolio companies in that space and be ready to reach out to them if, you know, suddenly your perfect strategic acquirer sort of looks at the company and says, eh, pass, you know, and that, yep. and that can happen. Even when they were hot on it six months or a year ago, they can just be like, eh, management shakeup. Yeah, we're yep. not really acquiring anything right now. And then you're, then you're out of luck. Good point. Good point. So, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting conundrum, but, uh, you know, sometimes uh, companies operate uh, in a general terms and maybe they should have a separate, maybe they should create a division with that strategic niche in it so that that could be acquired uh, and keep operating the company. There's all kinds of ways to go about. Let's get back to deal. Yeah, I mean, you could do it. You could do a carve out, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. that works. Yeah, good. good. We just want to bring uh great ideas to our listeners and you're helping with that. Let's get back to Deal Lounge. Now you have a free area and a subscriber area. What do subscribers get that free area that free users are missing out on? Well, they get a couple of things, but the main thing is they get access to our bigger deals. Um our deals that are free tend to be smaller and if I'm, you know, if I'm looking at from a private equity standpoint, if I'm bringing you a deal that fits perfectly into your portfolio company, which is really what would be required uh, with a business that's two and a half million, let's say a VBITDA and below, if that works out, then terrific. But a lot of times it doesn't work out. So from a private equity standpoint, you're looking at that smaller deal a lot of the time and saying, yeah, that's that's not really a fit. Whereas if I give you a bigger deal, the main benefit for the private equity firm is that they can deploy the capital more efficiently. So if their target check size is 10 to $50 million, that deal is going to go through a lot easier if I'm giving you a deal where they can write, you know, a $25 million check as opposed to a $10 million check. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. it's just it allows them to distribute their money more efficiently, and don't forget when they raise the funds, they they get paid on that capital being deployed. They don't get paid on it just sitting there. Right. So it it's their interest to deploy capital efficiently and write bigger checks, as opposed to you know smaller checks. Because the reality in the deal business is that the due diligence that's required on a ten million dollar deal is just the same as what's required on a $25 million deal. 
So oh, yeah. all else yeah. being equal, they would rather write the bigger check, and that way yes. they can you know they can distribute their funds more efficiently. Great, great tips, great ideas. You know, you know, if you're a company that you're and you're thinking about embarking on a sell side process, you're thinking about selling your business, and maybe you're selling part of it, and you want to look into uh, just testing the marketplace. You, you just you should give Deal Lounge a call, reach out. They can do a free consultation or hook you up with someone, a team or service provider. Eric, uh, tell our listeners the best ways to get in touch and find out more about Deal Lounge so that they can make up their mind whether to get in touch or not? Well, probably the, you know, the best way would be to just call us. Uh, call us at 310-957-2064. Uh, or you can send an email at info at dealllounge.net, D-E-A-L-O-U-N-G-E.net. So there's one L in Deal Lounge. Just mm-hmm. send us an email. We'd love to talk to you. love to hear about your situation you know, we'll uh, we'll set up a free consultation, and we'll figure out what you need, where you need it, and you know, we'll go from there. It's a great service. It's a great idea, and I wish you guys a lot of Thank success. You. I think it's it's very much needed in this space in the marketplace, and I think you're really Thank onto you. something. So, Eric Klinger, thanks so much for joining us today. I look forward to the next time we speak. Likewise, thanks for having me today. All right, we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back after this. Please stay with us. Thank you for listening to Exit Coach Radio. 